0: Good morning and greetings to each one in Jesus' worthy name. We've come this morning to worship and I hope that in this process of opening our hearts that we can truly see the worthiness of the one that we honor by being here this morning. We are facing an opportunity to allow God to give us direction as it relates to leadership in our continuing leadership in our church. And I had hoped to uh, be able to share a little bit on, on this earlier, but when I realized my slot for preaching was this Sunday, I decided that I would take this opportunity. I shared with the other two congregations earlier. But I'd like to share a little bit this morning before the message about the process of ordination and encouragement on the way we should uh, allow this situation to, how we should process this situation just briefly. I'm not bringing a message on it per se, but just like to share a little bit about ordination and so, I'd like to look at uh, several verses in Acts, <clears throat> kind of as, as a backdrop for comments. Acts chapter 14, hopefully what I'm going to share in, from this has already been your experience. <clears throat> and if not, it still can be. The process isn't, isn't over. We have record of in Acts chapter 14 of one of the situations where the church came to the point of needing to um, tap into leaders for the work of the church, and we have a record of of a little bit of how it went. In Acts 14 verse 22 and 23, it says, "Confirming the souls of the disciples." and exhorting them to continue in the faith and that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God and when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting they, commend- they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed and so we see that it was it was the procedure of the church to in this process of ordaining leaders to be involved in prayer and fasting, it ties those those two together. And if you haven't been, like I say, uh, I I expect, I believe you've been encouraged to pray, I believe you've been praying. Fasting is another aspect of of our seeking God. It's another dimension of opening ourselves and, and declaring to God that the spiritual realm is more important than the physical. And it's not so much that we are telling God, I'm fasting, so you have to notice me. But rather, fasting is a situation where we actually uh, put our our physical needs or our, our um, temporal needs on hold to help draw our attention to the reality of how important spiritual things are. That's basically what fasting is. And I want to say this also, that fasting we think of as being... An, uh, a time of, of denying ourselves food. It's interesting, I believe, and I'm convinced that the scripture record would help us understand that there are other dimensions of our physical and, and temporal life experience that we can put on hold or lay down that effectively is a fast before God. Uh, I, I remember I was reading in Daniel not so long ago and I noticed that it said that Daniel fasted in that. He didn't take any uh, of the dainties yeah, as food he only ate the necessary things and that was a type of fasting if I understood it right I uh, understand there are some who would say that they would uh, I know of a situation where a person uh, in effort to bring this about in their mind their heart the reality of things fast from things that would be entertaining uh, with the focus on being sure that they're focusing on the word and and prayer And I believe that's a true fast, even though food isn't been abstained from. There are some people that physically it doesn't work out for for extended fasting. And so I understand that, but I believe there are ways we can fast. We can deny ourselves things as a way to remind ourselves that the spiritual things take precedent over temporal. And that's basically what, what it's about. And so I just encourage you to look for ways to... Implement this in your life, especially over times like this, important times in the life of the church, uh, as in ordination. I would like to refer to our Statement of Faith, Rules of Discipline booklet. Uh, A couple things I'd like to just mention as it relates to ordination. Now, these things I'm going to mention may not be as applicable in this ordination situation as some, especially here in our area. Um, Now, we are planning this ordination Provide leadership in our district, and our policy in our in our conference is that we ordain in the district for the district. In other words, someone locally could be ordained when the need is in the south, and then it would be up to the respons- uh, be the responsibility of the church to sort out who will serve in the south, and where they will s- the, the different people will serve, and that has happened. In reverse, we've actually had bishops ordained in the South, and they needed to serve here in in our area. And so, um, <clears throat> it's not necessarily that we're going to ordain somebody from the South for the South and somebody from this area for this area, but it's within the district, and then we make applications of leadership where it seems most appropriate. And so, what I'm what I'm I'm saying is we tend to think that, well, the deacon ordination isn't something that we're so much concerned about. We focus on the bishop ordination uh, here in this area. And it tends to feel that way, the way it's working out. We are We were trying to honor the COVID situation and have two, two different ordinations to help break down the crowd size a little. That went away, that uh, restriction went away. <clears throat> and so we reconsidered. Do we bring it all together? But the brethren uh, in the ministry felt that it would be appropriate to continue like we would planned. It would show deference to those in the South that they're part of our district and that we can honor them by being there for part of these services. So we continued with that plan. It does make for a little extra work and a little different uh, approach to some of the things that are normal to go with ordination. But with the Lord's help and His grace, we hope to carry it out and allow things to work as they should. <clears throat> and so I'll make a few more comments about some of the things that I, I share are a little more or less applicable to this ordination situation. In our, in our booklet, there's a, a section on respect for discipline. Now the discipline we often think of is, is uh, dealing with bad things. Actually, discipline is, is another way of looking at it is to keep a standard, to keep the standard where it belongs. That's, and actually the word discipline is, is a word that refers to our, our statement of standard. Uh, certain discipline is actually uh, when you go to university to study and you choose a certain type of study that's called a discipline it's, it's a, a standard of what you're pursuing. And so I want us to think, I like for us to think a little bit more in those terms when we think about discipline. But it does have to do with dealing with things that are outside of that standard also. But this is uh, more of a statement that, that refers to keeping things aff- according to our standard. And this is what it says at the last paragraph of that section, it says, members are not to oppose the church's standards or advocate doctrines not in harmony therewith, but are urged to defend and promote the truth zealously. These standards include matters that are recommended in this rules and discipline. Failure to meet these standards disqualifies one for official assignments in the work of the church." Basically, what they're saying, there are things that we we highly recommend for our, our members, but we don't make it a matter of of membership. Uh, <clears throat> and one of those would be uh, the wearing of the plain coat for men. Uh, there's some others that we could, we could say are um, recommended, and yet it's not like we say if you don't wear a plain coat you're not saved uh, or you can't come and, and worship and fellowship with us. But it's a standard that we have chosen, and I'll, I'll read about that here in a minute. I'll go ahead and uh, read the last sentence of that paragraph, then I'm going to turn to another page. Members have the privilege of offering constructive criticism, giving helpful suggestions, and expressing specific concerns. In other words, we have a standard, we want it to be our standard, but it doesn't mean it's the last word. We're open to consideration of things. Now, over to. Uh, Page sixteen in our, our book, it has to do with qualifications for ministers and for those to, for those in the ministry. And I'd i like, like to just point out a few things here. And I I want to quick say this: I'm not giving the qualification message. I'm just trying to touch on some things that I would like for us to just have in mind as it relates to ordinations. We'll be. Planning to receive the qualification messages, message this evening, but in in the paragraph or the section has two paragraphs. Actually, it's just one uh, split for two pages on qualifications, and this is what it says about those who are being considered for leadership, uh, in ordination. Only such brethren as are scripturally qualified in soundness of faith, in spirituality, in personality in purity of life, and in suitable abilities shall be taken into the lot, otherwise ordained or licensed. Now I want you to notice those qualifications. Basically, have to do with a person's character. Their their faith, their spirituality, uh, personality has somewhat to do with character, uh, but it's mo- that basically is is a, um, referring to a person's character. Um, Gifts, I guess you would say, in relating and in purity of life. And and then the ability to teach, that would be suitable ability, such should be taken into this. Then it goes on to say, they shall be examples to the flock, examples to the flock in spirituality, in conduct, and attire. They shall wear the plain coat and no necktie. Now it's interesting. We talked about neckties in Sunday school class today, and I took note of what was said. And I agree that we as a conference are not saying that if someone wears a necktie, they're not saved. It's not saying that, that all people who wear neckties are not able to enter into the kingdom of God. But we as a brotherhood have agreed and taken some steps to try to help us be practical, make practical applications to scriptural principles and it's on that basis that we expect that of each other. It was kind of interesting, I noticed with interest uh, in relating to this topic, this, this discussion that last Sunday in our Sunday School lesson, the last verse said, pure religion and undefiled before God and the fathers is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world." I thought there was uh, an interesting um, scenario, a summary of what's required of God's children. It seems very simple. But as you analyze and think about, what it's saying is that be keeping oneself unspotted from the world is the total application of principles of God to be part of the kingdom of God and not part of the kingdom of this world. And that involves almost everything in life. Someone in Sunday school class I was in last Sunday uh, mentioned this and it was kind of an interesting thought. It said It talks about being undefiled before God and the Father. Aren't they the same? Isn't God and the Father the same entity? They pointed out that really what this is saying is God in His judgment and the Father in his mercy, God is both. He expects a standard, but he has mercy, and he wants us to show that mercy as we relate to those around us, the needs around us, the widows, the the fatherless, in their affliction especially. But then that other uh, aspect of keeping ourselves pure, unspotted from the world is pretty uh, encompassing as it relates to life. And, and so in our, in our statement here, when we're talking about the qualifications, I want us to realize that the plain coat wasn't mentioned as the first part. It is simply a practical application of, of our standard that helps us to, to realize that we intend to keep ourselves separate from the world's standards. But faith, purity, um, spirituality, conduct; those things were mentioned first, and they're most important because if they're not there, and the plain code is, we've got a big problem. But if we can, men, if we can maintain all the other aspects of life and character of life, and then we are able to meet the uh, standard of our agreement of a symbol that stands for our determination to have a reminder, uh, show a reality that we intend to remain unspotted from the world's program, the world's system, then that uh, is, is just another one of the helps that we feel like we have, we have created. And it mentions attire, um, examples in attire. Actually, um, back, I didn't finish what I was going to say in the, er- well, I guess I, it suits right now to go back to that. Where it says that these matters, these, these things that are recommended in our rules and discipline, uh, are to be carried out by those who we consider ones who are uh, to be examples of, of what we profess and what we expect. And in that, it, it actually talks about official assignments in the church. And it's not just ordinations and, and ordained leadership. But the, being examples to others is important in leadership in whatever role in our church, and it goes beyond just the way we dress. It goes. It's like is stated in the qualifications for those being considered for a nation. If there's an unsoundness of our faith or spirituality, then our example and dress doesn't really, actually, it's a, it's it's a, it goes against us because it is a hypocrisy that God can't bless, and it can undermine the faith in our church and in our our mode of operation. And so I want us to see the tie here between, I see the tie, without the tie. I want to see how this ties together, how this comes together. That we have some things that we've agreed on that, are practical applications of of other um, principles and truths. Now, someone said to me recently that it's been somewhat of a problem to them that the Mennonite Church somehow drafted or uh, began to utilize something to help distinguish separation from the world that actually the Catholics use. Uh, a priest looks a lot like a Mennonite in his official, uh, or in his uh, garb that he would wear to dress up. So it was kind of like, our, our, our choice was not good. And I challenged him a little bit and said, well, wait a minute, have you seen a Catholic that's not a priest wear one? Uh, no. And so, there's is cl- a clerical garb. And then I said, you know, what is, is uh, the potential? And, and I see a, a little bit of this potential creeping in among us, and that is that if the laity feels that, that that's not a requirement for them, it's, not rec- it's only recommended so we don't have to do it, after a while, the plain coat will be our clerical garb. And there's a problem with that, another problem with that, if we're having ordinations and we, uh, we want the person to, to be an example of what we recommend and we don't have any out there, who can we ordain? Because if, if it then becomes that it's necessary to stay by our, our, what we expect, they will need to begin wearing it after ordination. They weren't an example before. Uh, something doesn't quite fit there. And it will become a clerical garb. So I just encourage us to, to, uh, and, and I, I do appreciate um, the Pike Church uh, congregation. By and large, we have um, cooperation on this, and I appreciate it. But I and I don't want to say this about it. Yet, one of the reasons we have adopted this as, and some may say, well, why is it necessary? We can be, can, we can be humble. We can be modest, we can dress in ways that appear different from the world. I understand and I agree with that. But you know, it's interesting how I've uh, experienced some things already with individuals. They have felt that that this is just a requirement that's man-made and it doesn't really, it's, you don't find it in the Bible and their perspective. And and so why, why do I have to do it? And one of the things that, that is interesting um, we recommend the, the, the plain garb to be worn when it's appropriate to, to be formal or to show uh, extra respect for the, the people involved or the circumstance involved. And that's not foreign to uh, humanity, that's, that's an understood thing in society that it's appropriate to show your respect by the way you dress. That's been around a long time. Fact is, I've had somebody challenge me on it and say, well, that's a world's a worldly concept. I said, no. God uh, commanded Moses to teach, to tell the priests that they needed to dress up certain ways before they could serve him. And they, Actually, if they didn't dress right and they went into the, the, tiber, into the t- um, tabernacle, they died. If they weren't dressed right, if they weren't showing him respect that he asked for. And so... Um, I think society has had an understanding that that's appropriate. And I say that to say this, that I've seen situations where there are those who say, well, you're pushing the point, you're asking too much, and so they resist wearing the plain coat. They tend not to button their collar in, in, uh, in formal circumstances and so on, and you feel like that's good enough. And we don't judge people that, that don't do that. It's it's just a it except that we can see that they don't really um, accept our recommendation. But on some occasions, I've noticed that people that have walked away from us, with that being one of their contentions, I see them later at a formal situation, a wedding or a funeral, and they're buttoned up, and they're wearing a coat, but they have a tie in the middle of all that, and somehow. it's hard for me to understand the consistency of thought. And another thing I ran into was um, a person of that mindset came to their wedding day and they said, well, this is the most important day of my life. I've got to be formal. This is a wedding. Yeah, we agree with that. And so they felt compelled to put on a necktie because that's how you express formality. Yeah, agree with that. That's why the world wears neckties. It's a way of showing respect and acknowledging that this is a special occasion. But I, I shared with this individual. But that's why we come up. We came up with a way of doing it that's not the world's way of doing it. We have a way to express formality and respect for those. Really formal occasions, however, I like to think, and I believe that we basically believe that coming here to church to worship an Almighty God, our Savior and our Lord, with each other you see, coming together is a time of encouraging each other, and so. It's an appropriate place to be formal in showing our respect for each other and God and showing each other that we respect God. I believe that's why we have come to uh, the cust- we have the custom of dressing up to come to church. You know, I think most everybody you talk to understands something about Sunday clothes. Um, they're different than the other clothes we wear. Well, I don't want to over- overdo this point. I probably already have said more than I needed to. I will say this yet in in qualifications, it does have a word for the wives. The wives of brethren being considered shall likewise exemplify suitable scriptural qualifications and shall by word and example promote the ideals for Christian living set forth in this rules and discipline. And it's not just these rules and discipline, these are based on scripture. So I would like to focus on that perspective as well, we, I, I think we could add a little bit to that sentence and be uh, improved in this that according set forth those rules and discipline that are in, with the scriptures in focus. I think it's understood already. Now, I said I, I would mention what doesn't seem all that applicable here, and that is looking at a bishop ordination. Um, ministers have already been um, considered on the basis of of their being uh, in, <clears throat> in line with our standards. And so for bishop ordination, that basically isn't an issue. But I just thought I'd bring out what our statement says about ordination. We plan to have more ordinations, Lord willing. And a couple more things I want to say about ordination. We as a conference have have come together with some guidelines on on how we proceed. Um Members that are 18 and above are those eligible to vote, and we we plan to use ballots this evening. And um, those who have been members of our conference at least five years are eligible to be named. of course, like I say, for Bishop, that's already, that's not uh, an item for consideration. We do plan to continue the practice of expecting three votes for a deacon, to be um, eligible for lot or consideration, and for Bishop we have a standard of five votes. So those are just some things I wanted to remind us of, you may be reminded again yet before the ordination process is over, but I felt like just like to do a little due diligence so to speak and not leaving those things um, unmentioned before the fact. This morning, for a message, I'd like for us to turn to Revelation chapter 1. So, I guess you might be getting two messages this morning. This should be a sermonette. Before we go further, I'd like for us to pause for prayer. Father, we acknowledge you as the one who is head of the church, the one who created the church, leads the church by your Holy Spirit. We thank you for that reality. We thank you for the blessing of your direction in our lives. We also thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace that flows as we activate our faith in your word your promises and these spiritual realities i just pray you will bless us in our time together this morning as we consider what your desire is for our hearts to be like i just pray that you will open your word you open our hearts and you receive glory and strengthen our church we pray this in jesus worthy name amen As I was reading um, a Revelation recently, I was, I was amazed again at, at the focus of our Lord when he told John to write to the seven churches. <clears throat> and I will by no means do justice to all that could be said, could be considered here this morning. But I want us to just have our minds brought to this focus of Jesus who loves the church. And the message title this morning is this, does Jesus know that you love him? Does Jesus know that you love him? Just like for you to keep that question in your mind as I read scripture. I plan to read a good bit and not make a whole lot of comments. I will be making some. But in in Revelation chapter 1, beginning at verse 11, I want us to notice what John saw when he encountered the Lord in his vision. I found it very interesting. It's all something I've never seen before, and that is that the characteristics that he gives us of Jesus in that vision show up in the letters to the different churches. And different characteristics show up for different churches. I found that interesting. I haven't finished studying it to make all the connections and what it all means. But at least it's interesting and noteworthy that this... Occurs. So beginning at, at uh, verse 11, it says, Jesus, Jesus um, well, verse 10 says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, Now, in words, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book and send it into the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus and to Smyrna, to Pergamus, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of, and in the, midst of the seven candlesticks, one likened to the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I felt his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, fear not, I am the first and the last, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter, the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches." I'm going to go over those verses and just read to you the characteristics that we see that are mentioned of Jesus that show up in the seven letters. In verse 11, He says, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. In Verse 12, He was the golden, uh, He was in the midst of the golden candlesticks. That's uh, 12 and 13. Verse 14, his hair, his head and his hairs were white like wool. Then also in that verse, eyes were as flame of fire. Verse 15, his feet likened to fine brass as they were burned in a furnace. Also, voice as as the sound of many waters is mentioned in verse 15. Verse 16, And he had in his right hand seven stars. And then uh, also another verse. Interesting thing that uh, it says, out of his mouth went a two-edged sword. Very defining characteristic of of Jesus. And it shows up other places in scripture. Verse 18, again he reiterates, I am he that liveth and was dead. I'm alive forevermore. And then he also says, I have the keys of death and hell. We can be thankful for that because he is the one that gives us the right to escape death and hell as we trust in Him. He has the keys. You know, the past couple weeks have been an interesting uh, scenario that developed on the farm. There's a group of cattle that I'm responsible for and <clears throat> one, of the, one of the offspring of this herd got to be old enough to start noticing that that he was of, of a different character than the other animals. He had some nice horns on him, and, and he was uh, starting to notice that he was different. And it changed his attitude. And I began to notice this attitude change a couple weeks ago that it was beginning to get pretty concerning. Um, he got into uh, a situation where he began to control the whole herd. I went out to the field to check on him one day and he had all the animals in the corner and he would let them, he would let them leave. And he would, if one would try to escape, he would chase it down and butt it and put it back in the herd. And they needed water, it was a hot day. They needed a drink. And he wasn't letting them have anything but that corner they couldn't graze. And so I employed some mechanical means to uh, move him out of that situation into another pasture field, got him into another situation because I saw it was necessary. Well, I, I didn't have him quite in the field I wanted him in, so the next day I went out and the gate was open into the field I wanted him in, so I went out, I had a stick in my hand, and I went out to uh, move him to the next pasture, and when I got, to where he was and he was right next to the gate. He turned at, and looked at me and put his head down, shook his head a couple times and took two or three steps toward me uh, with that menacing attitude that I begin had beginning to notice and I wasn't approving of. And I waved my stick at him and yelled at him and he snorted at me and went that way. I thanked the Lord and I got out of there. I told Evan, that animal has to go. He cannot stay on this farm. So he said, well, there's, there's a reason to take him away in a couple of weeks, so we'll, we'll deal with him. Well, this past week, it was time to move him to that place. And I was concerned, and I prayed, and I asked the family to pray that in the process we would be safe. And so we used some animal psychology. A couple days ahead of time, I opened the barn where he could go in where it was shade and water and made it nice and comfortable in there. And, and these animals are curious, and I just left, and he found his way in there. And then, of course, he went in and out. And I realized on a hot day he'd be in there, so on one day I was in on the farm, and I thought, you know what, he's going to be in that barn where I need him. So I went, sure enough, he was in there, so I shut the gate on him. The next day was the day to load him up. I'm making a long story too long, I'm afraid. Anyway, we were careful and we used some more psychology on him. We put him in, in the barn and shut the gate behind him uh, very carefully. And Eric came to my rescue. We both stood at the gate. He, he looked like he was going to take me and the gate on and I didn't have it latched because uh, I didn't have time. But Eric with his stick and me with my ball bat, uh, we encouraged him to think twice and he did. And I had Evan open the roller door on the other end that led to the loading chute that went on to the trailer. And when he saw that there was an opportunity for escape, he took it. And that's exactly what we wanted him to think. And it worked. But we got him where he belonged, the next place, and I told him, watch out, this animal has an attitude. And he said, oh, we handle those kind. And as soon as they had him behind the gate, he turned around and he hit that gate with all his force, and he snorted and he hit that gate, and he was... He was aiming to get that man because now he had somebody else controlling him he didn't appreciate and we all were really relieved when it was over. I say that to say this, I had a very um, vivid experience with an adversary. He didn't like it that I was taking control of his life and he was out to change that and, and it was frustrating to him that I was getting away with it and every time I got the more control of him, he got more upset. And I'm saying this to say this. It helped me think about the spiritual reality that we live in. You know, Jesus has the keys of death and hell, and Satan thought he had them. But in Jesus' death, he took the, the power away from Satan on that. And Satan has not been, he's had an attitude all along, but it got worse. And Satan is out to destroy Jesus. He would like to destroy Jesus if he could, but there is a gate in the way. He can't get to him. But he wants, so he's trying to take it out on us. He wants us. He'd like to take us away from our master. But you know what? As long as we have faith in Jesus and what he's done for us, we're on the right side of the fence and he can't hurt us. And that feels pretty good. But the challenge is that we need by faith to elect to stay on the right side of the gate and this adversary we have is very cunning about getting us to forget and slip across the gate into the world you see he's he is in charge of the world system that's why there in the scripture i read this morning that we're to remain keep ourselves unspotted from the world it's because when we begin to indulge in the spots of the world, we are in his territory, and he can begin to destroy us. It's very critical. I think we, we need to be aware and reminded that we live, we, we live in the world, but we're not to be part of the world. How does the world work? Well, actually we enter the world when we enter our when um, when we allow ourselves to indulge in the in the fleshly appetites of this body, that puts us into that side of the equation. And so, death to self is so, so critical. And one of the things that happens to us if we allow the enemy to take take charge is we, we, the way we can tell that the enemy is making headway is when we notice that there are things in our lives that are world tented They're of the world. And Jesus, in his, in his letters to the seven churches, was naming some things that said, these are indicators that you're heading the wrong way. And I'm asking you to come back, to repent. He uses the word repent. I think eight times to these seven churches, one church he asked, he mentioned the word repent three times, one church he didn't ask him to repent about anything. But it's interesting in most of these churches, I'm not gonna have time to read it, I'm seeing, so I'm just gonna give a little bit of a summary. Most of these churches, he told them what they were doing right, that they they had things together right in a number of areas. But then he would say, but here's an area that I see That you're indulging in the world's perspective. And that's, I'm putting that in my words. Actually, I do want to read the first church because this is the one one that I want us to really focus on because I think it really lends itself to understanding all of them. The church at Ephesus, he says, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst, canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and has patience, and for my name's sake has labored, and has not fainted. Pretty active, faithful church, wouldn't you say? But notice what he says in the next verse. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent." Now there he said it twice to that church. And then he, he mentions, uh, but this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He comes back and gives him another commendation, but he says, your first love. your your all-encompassing affection for me isn't there. And if you don't repent, all these other good things you're doing aren't gonna cut it. I need that relationship. And then he goes on to say, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to churches. To him that overcometh I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise, paradise of God. To summarize, in the other churches, he could name good things that they had done. The, the uh, Church of Smyrna, I believe, is the one that that he, did, he, he only gave commendation. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich, he says in parentheses. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of these things which thou suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. But be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. So he didn't really give them anything to repent of, but he commended them. But he said, be careful. You're going to be tempted. You're going to be tried, and it's going to be difficult. Be faithful to death. Now, I wanted to say this about these letters to seven churches. Some say that these letters indicate different stages of churches or different uh, dispensations of churches through time. I believe that's possible that each one characterizes different segments of the church reality over the over the history. But I'm also convinced that that when he talks about this, he says, "Until I come, until I come." And so they all it all runs together till the end of time, till Christ returns. And so they're all. Uh, admonition to all of us right to the end and I believe that it's possible that some churches in our time have more uh, tendencies to some weaknesses and others to others and so I think there's there's an application to to all of the religious church church I'll say uh, in our time and I believe that probably in every church you'll find you could find someone who fits a certain letter. The admonition is to give consideration to your heart and repent if it's not as it should be. I'd like to just bypass a lot of these verses to come into um, the churches to the last one. I think this one, people tend to believe it's the last church mentioned. It is most typical, uh, it's mostly typical of the end time church, which we believe we're part of. And so there's a good bit of admonition here for us in our time. I believe the others could speak to us. And I would say um, in your devotional time sometime, uh, I'd encourage you to read these verses and just say, Lord, what are you saying to me? It was a real challenge as I did that. Uh, I will back up and say this, on the church, next to the last church, Philadelphia, he re- reiterates again in verse 11, Behold, I come quickly, hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. And so that is an admonition for us today. Verse 14, I'm going to read um, the remaining verses of the chapter. And, it is, and unto the angel of the church of Laodicea, this is chapter 3, I'm sorry. These things saith the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works. Oh, you notice how he identifies himself here as one of those things that he was characterized of in in, uh, the first chapter. Um, It's interesting how each church, he uses a different characterization to identify himself when he speaks to them. And so I think there's something, there's a tie there. I haven't studied it out, but I think there's a tie by the, characteristic, the character of, of Jesus that was referred to in the vision that specifically speaks to the problems that were in that church. And, and so uh, here with Laodicea, he says, I am, he say, saith the amen. It's the end. It's, it's the so be it of God. We're here. This is it. And it's interesting also, it adds to that The fact that he is the beginning of the creation. He is not only the end, but he's the alpha, as it refers to, the creation of God. Going on in verse 16, no, verse 15, I know thy works that thou art neither cold nor hot, I would thou wert cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame and the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eye that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Now I ask the question, at the beginning, in the sermon title, does Jesus know that you love him? Along with that, we can ask the question, do I know that he loves me? He says here in verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Have you ever felt like God isn't being fair? He's giving you a rough time? In Romans, I Hebrews chapter 12 it talks about that if if we endure chastening chastisement it's for our good and in, there, in, that, in that passage it says that as many as he loves he chastens so have you had difficult times that have made you wonder why God doesn't love you more why is it more merciful to your situation why do you have to deal with this or that you know if we can Open our ear to hear and open our eye to see spiritually. We begin to see that it's because he loves us. There was one church in here, he says, that he tries the reins of their hearts. That's what God does to his people. And so there are those times that we go through. There's, You might say dry times or those times when we, we struggle. There are times that God is allowing to chasten us, to ask us to consider where we are. To give extra special consideration to our situation to evaluate our love for Him. And really, rather than become disappointed in the struggle and the trial, we can become thankful that this is a sign that He loves me and He wants me refined for His purposes and for His glory. And the, the wonderful thing about that is, it says that if we overcome, we'll be able to sit down with him with his father in his throne. But it also, and that's in the future, but it also says, I will come in with you and I will sit down and I'll sup with you. Do you know what, What? how How blessed it is to have a, a good, an old friend over and sit down and have a meal together or, or a tea, you ladies? You know, it's, it's a real blessing. It's fellowship. You enjoy it, you look forward to it. You can think about it later as that was a good time. We had fellowship. We, We got together again. Jesus is asking for that privilege daily. He says, if you will hear me knocking on your door and open, that opening is, is surrender. It's dying to self. It's shutting the world out saying, I am not going to allow the world to control me. I want Jesus to be my control. That is opening the door. And he says, he promises if we, if we have that attitude, if we invite him in, he will come in. It needs to be sincere it needs to be uh, a total abandonment of ourselves and total willingness to do whatever he wants and he promises to sup with us to meet us on our highest spiritual need and level and in that intimacy is joy and blessing i'd like to quick turn to uh, romans chapter uh, five the first couple verses there i'll read these pretty much in closing and very little comment. There's one comment I'll have to make, but Romans chapter five, beginning at verse one. Therefore, therefore, being justified by faith, you see faith is the key. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory. uh, Is this a misprint? We glory in tribulation. That's what it says. And not only so, but we glory in tribulation also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience and patience experience and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed. Now notice what it says. Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. But it's only given to people that have that faith in total surrender and sincerity and love for God. Let's accept that challenge to let Jesus know that we love him by our surrender, our submission, our reaching out to him, our opening the door of our heart, opening of our ears. He says, to every church said, he that hath an ear, let him hear. That doesn't just mean we, we listen, but it means that we understand the realities of what we're experiencing. That means our ears are open to our hearts. And then we'll receive the blessing.